This is Maggie Jones and Natural Wonders. Jump in time with me to 1879. I think you'll enjoy being in Alaska with John Muir. He's yet another naturalist who wrote and who graces us with his travels, adventures, observations, and humor. The challenge will be keeping up with him. I'll be reading from Travels in Alaska, Chapter 8, Exploration of the Stikine Glaciers. The copy of Travels in Alaska that I have is a Dover publication published in 2017, an unabridged republication of the work originally published in 1915 by the Houghton Mifflin Company. This is 1879, summer. Muir is 41 years old. Chapter 8, Exploration of the Stikine Glaciers. Next day, I planned an excursion to the so-called Dirt Glacier, the most interesting to Indians and steamer men of all the Stikine glaciers from its mysterious floods. I left the steamer Gertrude for the Glacier Delta about an hour or two before sunset. The captain kindly loaned me his canoe and two of his Indian deckhands, who seemed much puzzled to know what the rare service required of them might mean and on leaving, bade a merry adieu to their companions. We camped on the west side of the river, opposite the front of the glacier, in a spacious valley, surrounded by snowy mountains. Thirteen small glaciers were in sight, and four waterfalls. It was a fine, serene evening, and the highest peaks were wearing turbans of flossy gossamer cloud stuff. I had my supper before leaving the steamer, so I had only to make a campfire, spread my blanket, and lie down. The Indians had their own bedding and lay beside their own fire. The Dirt Glacier is noted among the rivermen as being subject to violent flood outbursts once or twice a year, usually in late summer. The delta of this glacier stream is three to four miles wide where it fronts the river, and the many rough channels with which it is guttered and the uprooted trees and huge boulders that roughen its surface manifest the power of the floods that swept them to their places. But under ordinary conditions, the glacier discharges its drainage water into the river through only four or five of the delta channels. Our camp was made on the south or lower side of the delta below all the draining streams so that I would not have to ford any of them on my way to the glacier. The Indians chose a sand pit to sleep in. I chose a level spot back of a drift log. I had but little to say to my companions as they could speak no English, nor I much clinket or chin cook. In a few minutes after landing, they retired to their pit and were soon asleep. I lingered by the fire until after ten o'clock, for the night sky was clear, and the great white mountains in the starlight seemed nearer than by day, and to be looking down like guardians of the valley, while the waterfalls and the torrents escaping from beneath the big glacier roared in a broad, low monotone, sounding as if close at hand, though, as it proved the next day, the nearest was three miles away. After wrapping myself in my blankets, I still gazed into the marvelous sky and made out to sleep only about two hours. 
Then, without waking the sleepers, I arose, ate a piece of bread, and set out in my shirt sleeves, determined to make the most of the time at my disposal. The captain was to pick us up at about noon at a woodpile about a mile from here. But if in the meantime the steamer should run aground and he should need his canoe, a three-whistle signal would be given. Following a dry channel for about a mile, I came suddenly upon the main outlet of the glacier, which in the imperfect light seemed as large as the river, about 150 feet wide and perhaps three or four feet deep. A little farther up it was only about 50 feet wide and rushing on with impetuous, roaring force in its rocky channel, sweeping forward sand, gravel, cobblestones, and boulders, the bump and rumble sounds of the largest of these rolling stones being readily heard in the midst of the roaring. It was too swift and rough to ford, and no bridge tree could be found, for the great floods had cleared everything out of their way. I was therefore compelled to keep on up the right bank, however difficult the way. Where a strip of bare boulders lined the margin, the walking was easy, but where the current swept close along the ragged edge of the forest, progress was difficult and slow, on account of the snow-crinkled and interlaced thickets of alder and willow, reinforced with fallen trees and thorny devil's club, Echinopanax horridum, making a jungle all but impenetrable, the mile of this extravagantly difficult growth through which I struggled inch by inch will not soon be forgotten. At length, arriving within a few hundred yards of the glacier, full of Panax barbs, I found that both the glacier and its unfordable stream were pressing hard against a shelving cliff, dangerously steep, leaving no margin, and compelling me to scramble along its face before I could get on to the glacier. But by sunrise, all those cliff, jungle, and torrent troubles were overcome, and I gladly found myself free on the magnificent ice river. The curving, outbulging front of the glacier is about two miles wide, 200 feet high, and its surface for a mile or so above the front is strewn with moraine detritus, giving it a strangely dirty, dusky look, hence its name, the Dirt Glacier. This detritus-laden portion being all that is seen in passing up the river. A mile or two beyond the moraine-covered part, I was surprised to find alpine plants growing on the ice, fresh and green, some of them in full flower. These curious glacier gardens, the first I had seen, were evidently planted by snow avalanches from the high walls. They were well watered, of course, by the melting surface of the ice, and fairly well nourished by hummus, still attached to the roots, and in some places form beds of considerable thickness. Seedling trees and bushes also were growing among the flowers. Admiring these novel floating gardens, I struck out for the middle of the pure white glacier, where the ice seemed smoother, and then held straight on for about eight miles, where I reluctantly turned back to meet the steamer, greatly regretting that I had not brought a week's supply of hardtack to allow me to explore the glacier to its head, and then trust to some passing canoe to take me down to Buck Station, from which I could explore the big sticking glacier. 
Altogether, I saw about 15 or 16 miles of the main trunk. The grade is almost regular, and the walls on either hand are about from two to 3,000 feet high, sculptured like those of Yosemite Valley. I found no difficulty of an extraordinary kind. Many a crevasse had to be crossed, but most of them were narrow and easily jumped, while a few wide ones that lay in my way were crossed on sliver bridges or avoided by passing around them. The structure of the glacier was strikingly revealed on its melting surface. It is made up of thin vertical or inclined sheets or slabs set on edge and welded together. They represent, I think, the successive snowfalls from heavy storms on the tributaries. One of the tributaries on the right side, about three miles above the front, has been entirely melted off from the trunk and has receded two or three miles, forming an independent glacier. Across the mouth of this abandoned part of its channel, the main glacier flows, forming a dam which gives rise to a lake. On the head of the detached tributary, there are some five or six small residual glaciers, the drainage of which, with that of the snowy mountain slopes above them, discharges into the lake, whose outlet is through a channel or channels beneath the damming glacier. Now these subchannels are occasionally blocked and water rises until it flows alongside of the glacier, but as the dam is a moving one, a grand outburst is sometimes made, which, draining the large lake, produces a flood of amazing power, sweeping down immense quantities of moraine material and raising the river all the way down to its mouth, so the several trips may occasionally be made by the steamers after the season of low water has laid them up for the year. The occurrence of these floods are, of course, well known to the Indians and the steamboat men, though they know nothing of their cause. They simply remark, the dirt glacier has broken out again. I greatly enjoyed my walk up this majestic ice river, charmed by the pale blue, ineffably fine light in the crevices, moulins, and wells, and the innumerable azure pools in basins of azure ice, and the network of surface streams, large and small, gliding and swirling with wonderful grace of motion in their frictionless channels, calling forth devout admiration at almost every step, and filling the mind with a sense of nature's endless beauty and power. Looking ahead from the middle of the glacier, you see the broad white flood, though apparently rigid as iron, sweeping in graceful curves between its high mountain-like walls, small glaciers hanging in the hollows on either side, and snow in every form above them, and the great down-plunging granite buttresses and headlands of the walls marvelous in bold, massive sculpture, forests in side canyons to within 50 feet of the glacier, avalanche pathways overgrown with alder and willow, innumerable cascades keeping up a solemn harmony of water sounds blending with those of the glacier moulins and rills, and as far as the eye can reach, tributary glaciers at short intervals silently descending from their high white fountains to swell the grand central ice river. In the angle formed by the main glacier and the lake that gives rise to the river floods, 
There is a massive granite dome sparsely feathered with trees, and just beyond this Yosemitic rock is a mountain, perhaps 10,000 feet high, laden with ice and snow, which seemed pure, pearly white in the morning light. Last evening, as seen from camp, it was adorned with a cloud streamer, and both the streamer and the peak were flushed in the alpine glow. A mile or two above this mountain, on the opposite side of the glacier, there is a rock like the Yosemite Sentinel, and in general all the rock walls, as far as I saw them, are more or less Yosemitic in form and color and streaked with cascades. But wonderful as this noble ice river is in size and depth and in power displayed, far more wonderful was the vastly greater glacier, three or four thousand feet or perhaps a mile in depth, whose size and general history is inscribed on the sides of the walls and over the tops of the rocks in characters which have not yet been greatly dimmed by the weather. Comparing its present size with that when it was in its prime is like comparing a small rivulet to the same stream when it is a roaring torrent. The return trip to the camp, past the shelving cliff, and through the weary Devil's Club jungle was made in a few hours. The Indians had gone off picking berries, but were on the watch for me and hailed me as I approached. The captain had called for me, and after waiting three hours, departed for Wrangell, without leaving any food, to make sure, I suppose, of a quick return of his Indians and canoe. This was no serious matter, however, for the swift current swept us down to Buck Station, some 35 miles distant, by 8 o'clock. Here I remained to study the big sticking glacier, but the Indians set out for Wrangell soon after supper, though I invited them to stay till morning. I'll stop there in reading that chapter 8. I'll read a little bit about John Muir from the wiki, Wikipedia site. His last name is spelled M-U-I-R. Muir was noted for being an ecological thinker, political spokesman, and environmental advocate whose writings became a personal guide into nature for many people, making his name almost ubiquitous in the modern environmental consciousness. According to author William Anderson, Muir exemplified the archetype of our oneness with the earth, while biographer Donald Worster says he believed his mission was saving the American soul from total surrender to materialism. On April 21, 2013, the first John Muir Day was celebrated in Scotland, which marked the 175th anniversary of his birth, paying homage to the conservationist. And earlier, I read some of Muir's writing in Mike Mossman's article in The Passenger Pigeon, a quarterly publication of the Wisconsin Society for Ornithology. Mike, as well as being a naturalist and ecologist of the highest order, is an enthusiastic historian, and his article has extensive passages from Muir's book that he wrote four years before his death, The Story of My Boyhood and Youth about his time in Wisconsin. He was 11 when his family moved to Wisconsin from Scotland in 1849, and he observed the changing landscape as European settlement was booming. These were his formative years, leaving for new adventures in his early 20s, 
but it's his experiences in Wisconsin were his solid foundation. I recommend if you want to learn more about me or hear more of his beautiful writing, look to the WDRT.org archive podcasts of Natural Wonders and look for programs 23 and 24, and there you'll find more of Mira's wonderful writing. This is Maggie Jones and Natural Wonders. Thank you for listening.